So, picking up in chapter 13, we're actually going to look to cover some significant ground tonight. Genesis 13, if you'll join me there. So, uh, real quick, we recap, we went through chapter 12 last week, and we saw how uh, God had called Abraham, uh, or Abram, uh, out of his land, called him to obey, uh, to go, and to a place that he would show him. And, and we saw Abram's faith. We saw how Abram up and went and obeyed, and, and he set the example right off the bat of a, of a man of God, a man who trusted God, a man who obeyed God, a man who trusted the promises of God. Uh, he, he got up not knowing where he was going. He took his wife with him, and, and he trusted that the promises of God would be fulfilled, that he would become a great nation, that God through him would bring about uh, really, the plan of redemption to bring about a blessing for all peoples, that he would be uh, a nation that couldn't even be counted, and yet his wife was barren, and he knew that at the time. And so we see Abram's great faith right off the bat, and God's promises towards him, and that God called him at the ripe young age of 75 uh, to begin uh, walking in uh, God's will for his life. And it's just a reminder to us, you know, that it's never too late, it's never too early. God can use any one of us could call any one of us at any time. The question is, are we willing? Will we respond? Will we obey? We also see a bit of a lesson in Abraham's or Abram's lie. Uh, when he went down to Egypt, we saw how he faltered a little bit. He went down there because of the famine, and, and in a lapse of faith and in, in sort of fear, he put his wife in harm's way, he lied to Pharaoh, and uh, caused a bit of, of havoc down there, and then got kicked out of Egypt. And so we're kind of picking up right where that story leaves off from chapter 12. But we see one of the things uh, that, that's interesting to note if we compare Scripture with Scripture, uh, something I didn't touch on last week that I wanted to mention. Um, and I was listening to a study done by uh, John Corson recently, and he was touching on this chapter and, he was, and I thought it's worth mentioning, bringing up about Sarai, because we didn't talk much about her faith. But, um, you know, in the New Testament, we see that Peter talks about how she's an example of a godly woman in her submission to Abram and her trust of God by following and obeying the leadership of Abram in her life. And uh, it's important to note how in the last chapter, we see she was kind of willing to go put herself in harm's way, you know, do whatever her husband was leading her to do, trusting that God was going to care for her. But it's, she's noted as a woman of faith and a woman uh, to be followed in the New Testament because of her example. But a final note as well, uh, we, see, we read here in the end of chapter 12 that Abram kind of made out uh, with a lot of spoil from being there in Egypt because of his beautiful wife. Uh, Pharaoh gave him all kinds of stuff. And then when everything went down, he kicked him out and he got to take all this stuff with him. Well, he got all kinds of gold and silver and, and animals and servants. And we're going to hear about one of those servants a little bit later in chapter 16, a servant named Hagar. If you remember, if that name sounds familiar, this is when he acquired that servant, most likely. And that servant ultimately is going to represent uh, another lapse of faith in the life of Sarai and Abram. So picking up where we left off, they now are leaving Egypt. We're going to pick up in chapter 13. You want to join, join me there in verse 1? It says, So Abram went up from Egypt to Negev, and he and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. 
And now Abram was very rich in livestock and silver and gold. Again, he was already rich beforehand, but then, then <coughs> through Egypt was even more wealthy. And it says he went on his journeys from Negev as far as Bethel to the place w- where his tent had been in the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar where he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. So Abram is kind of seeking a restart here, it seems like. After all of this uh, issue here in Egypt, he, he goes down there uh, for fear because of the family. He's going through some, some tr- real trials. He lies. He kind of gets in trouble. He gets kicked out. And he goes straight back to where God spoke to him last. He goes straight back to that area between Bethel and Ai where he had built that altar. And God had spoken to him and said, this is going to be your land. This is going to be for your descendants. I'm going to do great things through you. And so he went back to that place, and he called on the name of the Lord. And it says in verse 5, Abram called on the name of the Lord, and Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. You know, I think for us there's a lesson to be learned here, and it's, you know, I think that I can relate to this. You know, when we go through challenges, when we go through trials, or when we suffer defeat, we have shortcomings. It's, a, it's kind of a reminder to us many times that we kind of got to go crawling back to the Lord and go, God, what do you want me to do again? And, and Abram does this. He goes back to this place where God last spoke to him. And we don't hear of really any further instruction or reiteration from God all the way to this point. And so he goes back to that place and he calls on the name of the Lord. And, you know, sometimes we go through a season of time where we go through a, a, a while where we don't really get clear direction from the Lord. We seem to have those, we call those, those desert times. Anybody experience those? I know I have, where even if we are seeking and calling out, sometimes God doesn't speak anything new. And it's interesting to note here that he goes straight back to this place, Abram does, and it says he calls on the name of the Lord, but we're not told that he got any answer. We're not told that right off the bat God said this. It just says he called on the name of the Lord. And then it kind of goes on to narrate what, what happens next in the story. But again, that's something I think we can all relate to. Sometimes God doesn't answer right away, does he? His time isn't our time. And sometimes it's because he has already given us instruction and we haven't followed it yet. You know, I think I've been in that place too where he tells me to do something, I don't do it, and then I go, got any other ideas, God? You know, how about a, a uh, a new revelation or can I get some other instructions? Now, how about you do what I told you to do first, and then we'll go from there. You know, and sometimes we're in that place where we seek the Lord, and he doesn't give us anything new. Sometimes we need to return to that place at Jesus' feet, uh, you know, to to sort of reset and recalibrate. Uh, Jesus set a really good example of taking regular time to go to a special place to seek his Father. We read in the New Testament There are many times where he separated from the people or even from his disciples and went up to the mountain to pray or he went early away to pray and to seek his father. You know, and and he he poured himself out during his years of ministry here, healing the sick, preaching to the multitudes, uh, feeding, uh, doing so much, discipling his disciples. But he always took regular time to go be refreshed before his father and to seek his father's face. You know, there's going to be a few times that we read that Abram calls out to the name of the Lord. And we don't see a recorded answer, and sometimes the answer is right away, sometimes it's a little bit later. But it reminds me of Psalm, 
<clears throat> excuse me, Psalms 5, 1 through, three, 1 through 3, where David, I think, could relate to this as well. He says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice you're going to hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. We know from the last chapter in verse 7 that Abram was told that God was going to give him and his descendants this land. And God had previously instructed him to go to this place, spy it out, set up camp, and that is what he is told to do. And at this point, God gives him no further instruction. And I find it encouraging because I know God doesn't always continue to give me new instruction. He doesn't always work with us that way. Sometimes he wants us to carry on in his established word. You know, Paul gives us an example of being steadfast in Acts chapter 20. He says, And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. Talk about a, a grim destination. He knew what was waiting for him. But he says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy. And the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul, just like Abram, was trusting in God's promises, looking ahead to the future, putting his hope in Christ, putting his hope in heavenly things. Earthly circumstances didn't move him. He wasn't shaken by those things. And we are. this is a lesson for us to carry on. Sometimes when God doesn't give us that answer we're looking for or wanting or seeking, that means he's just simply saying, carry on in the things I've already told you. You know, we have many times a struggle where we're seeking some new revelation or we're seeking to hear from God in some special circumstance when his established word already clearly says what we are to do. He's given us instructions to follow already, and sometimes we fail to obey it because we, we want something different. We're seeking something special or new, and God's already told us what to do here. And so as a reminder for us, we should make sure that we are already walking in his established word as we seek him for further direction. Amen? Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14, I was reading recently. It made me think of this. It says, For I know the thoughts I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call on me, and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. And when you search for me with all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. You know, another thing that I think we can learn from this, because there's several cases we see Abram, um, even in the last chapter and chapters come, where he goes, he calls on the name of the Lord, and then he just continues on with what he feels God has told him already to do. But he is persistent in seeking God. And we are told to be persistent. It says here in Jeremiah 29 that when we seek him, we'll find him. If we search for him with all of our hearts. And in Luke 11, Jesus tells a story about being persistent in prayer. It says, which of you, this is Luke 11, verse 5 through 10. Luke chapter 11, verse 5 through 10. Jesus says, which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves. And a friend of mine has come to me on this journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within and say, Do not trouble me. The door is now shut. My children are with me in bed. I cannot rise and give to you. 
I say to you that though he will not rise and give to him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence he will rise and give to him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. So we're encouraged to persevere and persist in prayer. And Abram, after coming out of this trial in Egypt, he goes straight to seeking God. It's a good example for us. You know, with circumstances, trials, even failings on our part, I think have that unique ability to improve our prayer life. I know just this afternoon, um, as I was wrapping up preparations for this study, and I not yet saved and transferred it so that I could use it to, uh, to teach with, um, then my computer decided to upgrade to Windows 10 all of a sudden. And apparently that takes an hour and a half. And so it shut down and restarted and shut down and restarted. And I'm going, oh, man. I had no access to it. I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. It was all there on my computer. And for an hour and a half, it's going up and down. So I'm scrambling to prepare it over again on my iPad and using different stuff to just kind of try and put it all back together. And it finally rebooted and finished whatever the heck it was doing. And, and I managed to save it and transfer it before I lost it again. But uh, it's amazing how that situation improved my prayer life all of a sudden. It's amazing how suddenly I was praying for God to work in technology. But that's true, isn't it? When the heat's turned up, suddenly we become prayer warriors. Suddenly we seek God fervently. We'll go to any length to ask for God's deliverance, won't we? And, you know, it's my prayer that my heart would be desperate for Him at all times. That we would seek Him at all times. That we would seek Him when things are good. We would rejoice eagerly at His feet. You know, and lastly, it's worth noting, I think Jesus clearly is the ultimate example in this. As he sought his father in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he prayed fervently for something he did not receive. And yet he persisted in prayer, and he accepted the answer that he got. He remained obedient to the end. So Abraham's seeking God. He's seeking God. He's seeking further direction. He had just come out of Egypt. And let's read on in verse 5. It says, Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had great flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not sustain them while dwelling there together. For their possessions were so great, they were not able to remain together. God had truly blessed them materially. God had blessed them abundantly. But you know what? I think God also used this situation to force them to make a change. God used this situation that they had to part ways. They had to make an adjustment. There was strife, it says in verse 7, between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdmen, herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So they're fighting over these natural resources. You know, back in that day and time, wealth was not having a fat bank account. Wealth was not having an impressive portfolio of stocks and real estate holdings. Uh, wealth was sheep and cows. And, and barns and fields and, and, and all kinds of things like that, which took a lot of land to sustain something like that. But that was wealth back then. Wealth was animals and servants and family. And so obviously the more you grew in wealth, you clearly needed much more territory to sustain that. You needed water sources. You needed places to grow crops. And they simply could not survive staying together in the same exact place. And so they're fighting, their herdsmen are fighting <coughs> over these natural resources so Lot lifted up, his, <coughs> excuse me, verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, 
Please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right. Or if to the right, then I will go to the left. Notice Abram's heart here. What an example, again, of trust in God. Is he greedy for gain? Is he clutching tightly to, to what he feels is his because God said so? No, he doesn't feel like it's his, his duty and his, it's all on him to claim what God has promised him. He trusts God to give it to him. He trusts if God says it's going to be so, it will. He doesn't have to make it so. He doesn't have to hold on to it tightly and, and force the issue. He's going, you know what? You make a choice. Pick this way, I'll go that way. You know, God has given all this to us. God's going to fulfill his promises one way or another. He's going to meet our needs. So obviously Abram's got a, a heart here of trust in God, and he's not greedy for gain. Even though he has this great wealth, it hasn't gone to his head. It's not where his treasure is. So picking up in verse 10, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the valley of Jordan that was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It was like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go to Zoar. This area apparently was beautiful before, and we'll read later obviously what happens to Sodom and Gomorrah. We're familiar with that story. But apparently this place was lush and beautiful as compared to the Garden of Eden or what they thought the Garden of Eden might have looked like. Uh, obviously, <coughs> they hadn't seen the Garden of Eden, uh, but they had heard the traditions passed down of it's how beautiful it was, and they're comparing it to that in beauty. So Lot chose for himself, verse 11, all of the valley of Jordan. And Lot journeyed eastward, and thus they separated from each other. And Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly, and sinners against the Lord. I think there's a bit of a hidden lesson to be gleaned here as well. You know, if material possession and wealth uh, are the only consideration that we have for making a decision, if what's going to best benefit us personally is our only consideration, it's a pretty good recipe for disaster. And we see a lot, he didn't seek God. It doesn't say he, he prayed over it. He didn't, he didn't seek Abram's best interest in mind. He's picked the best spot possible by appearance. He used the classic uh, lust of the eyes and said, I'll take that. And we're going to see <coughs> it does not serve him well. He ends up moving in and setting up camp right next to the most wicked city in the area. And we're not supposed to abide in the seat of the scornful. We're not supposed to sit in the, in the seat of, of the unrighteous. We're not supposed to partake and be participators with them, as we read in Psalms 1. But we see Lot doing that very thing. He's, for the sake of the land and really what is wealth at that time, He's willing to compromise his morals. He's willing to move in with the ungodly. And so in verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him. So now the Lord speaks. Now after this strife has happened, they separate ways. Um, now God speaks to Abram. You know, it's interesting that the Lord... What, what the Lord had to say seemed to be for Abram's ears only, that, that God waited until, it makes a special note here, God waited until Lot left. And he said, okay, now Abram, we've got to talk. I've got to remind you why you're here. And this was for Abram's ears. He waited until Lot had departed. God had a specific plan for Abram. 
And God has, has a plan for each person in his sovereignty. You know, God, God sees us as individuals, and I love how this illustrates how God hones in on, on the individual purpose and plan he has for Abram and his family at this point in time. And it, and it should serve as a good reminder to us that God doesn't have the herd mentality towards us. That God doesn't see us as a group, as a mob, or as, as, a, as the whole of mankind. He, see, he doesn't see people. He sees persons. He sees individuals. He, looks at, at, he doesn't look at a crowd and, and see a crowd. He sees individuals. He sees me. He sees you. Um, it's just so amazing to think how he could look at this planet and see nothing but an individual person in need. See nothing but how he loves each one of us, how he knows each one of us intimately. And it, it really makes us understand when it talks about how, how Jesus, how God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, you know, that he would have truly died for just one. That he wasn't thinking of the whole world, he was thinking of each of us. If that makes sense. He was thinking of each of us individually. It wasn't just the planet at large. It was, it was, it was, it was Stephen. It was, it was, it was Bill. It was, it was Luke. It was Mara. It was Don. That God, that Jesus was thinking of. Yes, you in particular. Oh, I'm sorry. And and Wilma, maybe Wilma too. <laughs> no, but God was thinking of us individually. It just blows my mind to think how God can look down upon billions of people and see individuals. Isn't that amazing that he would see each face, each heart, each need, uh, and, and, and his heart breaks for each one. His heart longs for a relationship with each one of us. How amazing and how big our God is. Psalm 1, it makes me think of one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 139, how it talks about <clears throat> how intimately God knows us, how, how he knows our thoughts before they're even thoughts. It's not like he knows, he doesn't just know what we're thinking, he knows what we're about to think. How amazing is that? Does that blow your mind a little bit? It's not that he knows, he, I mean, he knows what we're going to say. He also knows the decisions that we're going to make, but he also knows if we would have decided something else, what would happen then? I mean, it's just, it just blows my mind to think of how intimately God pays attention to and cares about each of us individually. As it says in Psalm 139, it says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high. I cannot attain it. I can't comprehend it. Thoughts are greater than the number of the sands on the sea. It's amazing how God deals with us as individuals, as, as intimate relation, individual relationships. So God goes on to remind and reiterate his promises to Abram and to his descendants. And so he says, now lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward. In other words, spin all the way around, check out every direction, Despite the fact that he just told Lot he could have that area, it's all yours. It's all for you and for your family. <clears throat> Verse 15, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. You know, I don't believe <clears throat> this is strictly a reference to his physical descendants. This is also clearly a reference to his spiritual descendants. Though, yes, the nation of Israel does become incredibly vast and a great power on the earth for various times throughout history, this, is, I believe, is a reference to his descendants in Christ, his descendants through the seed, the one through whom salvation would come. Those who are children of Abraham by faith, 
not by the law, not by blood. Romans 4.16 says, Therefore it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, in other words, the physical, but to also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. In the presence of him whom he believed, God, who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, who contrary to hope in hope believed, so that he became the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. That's in Romans 4. So it clarifies for us that God is talking not just about his children's children's children, his physical descendants. He's talking about us. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about all nations, not just the nation of Israel. That through him, there would be the church. There would be all those included in the faith of Abraham is considered the children of Abraham because Abraham's faith is what is, is he's the father of the faith in Christ and in the promises of God as we're going to talk about a little bit more later on. <clears throat> so picking up in verse 17, it says, Arise and walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. And then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt in the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. So God gives him, God reminds him, gives him some instruction here. God does visit him and says, hey, get up. I want you to move around. I want you to check out this place that I'm going to give to you. Get up, move about the land, check, walk its length and breadth, and, and believe in my promises. So God is calling upon, he's inviting Abraham to walk in his promises. He's telling Ab- Abram, walk around here like you own the place. Because you do. Because I've said so. Because the I, the Lord, the God who owns it all, am giving it to you. You know, and God promises something. We need to consider it done. Amen? We need to walk in it as if we've already received it. <clears throat> Hebrews 6.11 says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, the promises of God should have an effect on us. They should stir us to action. We should walk in them as if we've received them already. And especially to those here in Hebrews, it talks about how those who by faith trusted in the promises, having not seen them fulfilled yet, they didn't see Christ. They didn't see the fulfillment of what God had promised, yet they trusted in them. They walked as if they they were already going to be. They had that kind of faith. They trusted in God's promises. (coughs) Excuse me. Still struggling with this mucus thing here. Hebrews 11, if you're taking down notes, also deals with this, talking about the promises of God. That even in the face of adversity that defies human logic, we can still believe and trust. Hebrews 11, 13 through 19 says, These all died in faith. And this is talking about those people in the hall of faith, those people who are noted for their great faith in God. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off. And they were assured of them. And they embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on this earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he said, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And in Second Peter 1.3 it says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, and by which you have been given, have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So by his divine power, he's given us these promises. And we can walk in them and consider it done. Just like the Old Testament heroes of faith who looked ahead to Christ, we walk by faith in the promises of God. What promises? Well, we have promised that Jesus did come, that he did die, and that it was enough. And that if we place our faith in him, that he is the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And that we can go to the Father through him. We have the promise of forgiveness. There's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? We have the promise of sanctification, that through him we are righteous in God's eyes. We have the promise of eternal reward for serving and investing in his kingdom. We have the promise that he is preparing a place for us. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. We have promised that there will be justice. You know, we see the wickedness in this world. We see the injustice. And sometimes we want it now, don't we? It's like, man, I'm, I'm kind of down for that whole marine motto, I kill them all, let God sort them out kind of a thing. We get all frustrated with seeing the injustice and the evil in this world. But we can trust in the promise of God that he is holy, that he is righteous, and that he will render justice in the due time. That he is long-suffering, but justice will come. We are set free from sin. We are no longer slaves. We, there's so many promises we can hold fast to. And in knowing we have them, we are to walk in them. To walk as though we receive them. To walk as children of Christ. To walk as free from sin. To walk in these promises is what God has called us to do. And that's what he's telling Abram to do. He's saying, walk around. Walk in this promise that I've given you. Look at this land. This is going to be your family's. This is going to be yours. And through you, the whole, all the nations are going to be blessed. I want you to walk in these promises. I want you to take, walk around this land like you own the place because you do, because I've said it. It hasn't happened yet, but it's as good as done. And the same thing is true for us and the promises God has given us. And so we're going to tackle chapter 14. If you'll hang in there with me. Let's pick up Genesis 14 and read on. It says, And it came to pass in the days <coughs> excuse me, of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, and Chedor Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. This is obviously going to be another vocabulary lesson. That they made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, and Shemeber, king of Zeboim, the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined together in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. In twelve years they served Ched Dor Leomer, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Chedoleomer and the kings that were with him came and attacked Rephaim and Ashtaroth and Karnaim and Zuzim and Ham 
and Imim and Sheva and some other guy. And <laughs> I'm sure glad we don't name our kids these things these days. <laughs> and the Horites in their mountain of Seir, as far as El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they turned back and came to in Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and attacked all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who dwelt in Hezon Tamar. And the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined together in battle in the valley of Siddim. And <coughs> Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, title king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Got the picture? You guys got all that? All right. So you can picture the battle, four kings against five. It's about to go down. So now the valley of Siddim was full of asphalt pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and some fell there, and the remainder fled to the mountains. And then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the provisions, and went their way. And they also took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and they were allies with Abram. So now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born into his house and went in pursuit as far as Dan. So Abram's got not only great wealth and resources, he's got a little bit of a standing army going on too. He was a powerful man in that time. He had all of these servants even born into his house. So he's, he's multiplying and growing in great wealth and power in this land. And he's well respected. So he gathers all of his people. And he pursues Lot and his captors. And it says in verse 15, <clears throat> He divided his forces against them by night. He and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And so he brought back all the goods. He also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, the kings who were, and the kings who were with him. So Abram has this great victory. He pursues those who had captured his nephew, and he actually overcomes them, he overtakes them, and he rescues everyone. He brings them all back has an amazing victory. Pretty impressive. He was definitely a great man in that time. And he's, you know, in his late 70s at this point. That guy's pretty tough. Pretty tough. And so now we're going to read on and we're going to meet a very interesting character. The king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. Um, very interesting how suddenly on the scene comes this person called Melchizedek. So let's read, picking up in verse 18, it says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of the God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he, that is Abram, gave a tithe of all. Wow, interesting, very interesting how all of a sudden out of the blue, we see this guy Melchizedek, and we're told he is not only a king, <clears throat> but he's a priest of God Most High, which is the first time we also see this title of God. 
So who is Melchizedek? Let's dig into this a little bit. Melchizedek, first of all, his name itself means king or royal. It it's, comes from two root words, king or royal one, and righteousness or right or rightness or equality or justice. And so basically he's the king of rightness or justice is what his name literally means. Or king of equality, a king of righteousness. And Salem, the city of which he's a king, uh, also the word Salem means peace. It's actually an early name for Jerusalem. Okay, so the city that he's the king of is actually uh, ancient Jerusalem, uh, way back before it became known as Jerusalem and established as uh, you know, Israel's holy city. But this, there's this king, this prophet, this priest, this king of this city, and he comes out to meet Abram and to bless him, and he brings bread and wine. Very interesting. We see all of a sudden, out of the, out of the blue, we see this picture of communion. We see this picture uh, before the law was ever established, before the Passover, before all that happened in Egypt, obviously well before Christ instituted communion there on, on Passover, <coughs> there in the upper room, we see this, this priest, Melchizedek, come out and offer bread and wine to Abram after this victory, after God had given this victory and he had rescued Lot, and he blesses Abram. And he gives us this incredible picture of God's sacrificial plan of redemption, of the Passover, of how uh, one day there will be a prophet, priest, and king named Jesus Christ who will be the sacrifice who that bread and wine represents. And we see that he is the priest of the Most High God. Again, this new title is now introduced. He is the God above all. He is the elevated one. And what's interesting here is we see also this first establishment of tithing. We see Abram, and we're not given much detail, but automatically Abram gives tithe, it says, to this priest, to Melchizedek. Gives him a tenth of everything. And we are told in Scripture that tithing is something that we are to do. And I know we've often, we've, we associate it with the law and forward, but tithing was established well before the law. Tithing was clearly established well before that first, um, <coughs> that first covenant. But it's often thought that Melchizedek, not only at the very least, he's a picture of Christ. He's a picture of Christ in the Old Testament. He's a picture of, of uh, who was to come. But some also think it's possible he was an actual Christophany or an appearance of Christ himself coming and representing uh, you know, to Abram directly. And it's quite possible. There are a few places in the Old Testament where, we, where it seems clear in the original language that Christ did uh, reveal himself in a physical way to some of the prophets of old. Um, but this guy Melchizedek is establishing and introducing a priesthood that is one, one, the priesthood that is an eternal priesthood is the priesthood that only Jesus himself could carry on. So let's read on a little bit about it. Um, first of all, a note on tithing. It's interesting how it's established here, and this is one of the things in Scripture where God, one of the only places where God says to test him. In Malachi 3, 7 through 12, it says, Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances. This is God challenging the Israelites. And he says, You have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? <coughs> Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and in offerings. You are cursed, 
for, with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And I will rebuke the devourer, devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations shall call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. So tithing is established here. We see this picture of Abram giving back to God what the spoils of what he has just received. And what is that a symbol of? Well, it's a symbol of not Abram giving something of his to God. It's a symbol of Abram giving a little bit back to God what was already his. That's what tithing is. Tithing isn't good stewardship. Tithing is recognizing that all we have is God's. And it's proving that we trust and believe that by giving some of it back to him, by, by entrusting it back to him. That's what tithe is. Tithe is returning something to its owner. Tithe is not us giving something up that belongs to us. Tithe is returning something to the one who owns it all, recognizing that it's from him to begin with. So who's this guy Melchizedek? Well, let's look into his priesthood a little bit. He is not mentioned at all in the Old Testament except for one other place in Psalm 110. In Psalm 110 it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And we know later on in Scripture this is clearly a prophecy about Jesus Christ himself. It says, The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. For the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. He will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand and he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. So he's talking about the priesthood here prophetically, Christ's priesthood and Christ's kingship, his rule, that he is a king. And it's prophetic here in Psalm 110, speaking of Jesus Christ. And Melchizedek was an example. He was a foreshadow of Christ's coming and who Christ is. Hebrews gives us quite a bit on Melchizedek. So we're going to have to skip all the way up to Hebrews 5. There's nothing more mentioned about Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Hebrews 5, picking up in verse 1. It says, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. And he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. So speaking of earthly priests, he's saying, listen, they can relate, they're human, they're flawed, they're weak, and he can relate to those he's offering uh, sacrifices, those who, for whom he's offering sacrifices. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so we see Christ um, designated by God as a high priest, and we see a reference to uh, Psalm 110. And he's quoting here in Hebrews 5.5 5 from Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill in Zion. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. 
Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so here in Hebrews 5, uh, Paul is quoting Psalm 2 and referencing Psalm 110, this prophecy that began with Melchizedek about the priesthood and kingship of Jesus Christ himself. Reading on in Hebrews 5, it says in verse 6, that just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Again, Psalm 110. In verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. So that's Hebrews chapter 5. So we know that Jesus Christ, of a, of a different priesthood, of an eternal priesthood, became the one mediator between us and God, the only one we need. We don't need an earthly priest anymore, amen? We're free from that. We don't need to confess our sins to a person. We don't need someone to mediate between us and God. There's a new priesthood in, in place now, an eternal one, and by the prophet, the priest, the king, Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. There's a little more insight from Hebrews chapter 8 I want to touch on real quick. Hebrews chapter 8, if you want to turn there as well, Hebrews 8 verse 4 says, For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, that is, physical, earthly priests, who serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See that you make all the things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then there would be no place sought for a second. So were the promises of God not as good in the Old Testament as the promises of God in the New Testament? Well, no. But the promises of God in the Old Testament were conditional, weren't they? Throughout that, that old covenant that he's referencing here, it, the old covenant read this way, If you will do this, then I will do this. Well, that inherently has some human dependency, doesn't it? And really, as we read in Romans, we know that the law was only meant to be a what? A tutor to lead us to Christ. It was meant to expose our utter failings and our inability to save ourselves. It, it was meant to show us that even if the smallest piece of saving us was dependent on us, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to fly. We needed Christ to do it all. We needed him to pay the price completely once for all. And that's what he came to do, is establish that new covenant, that promise, that better promise that's utterly dependent on him, that says, I will fulfill it. I will make it done. And so now finishing off, back in Genesis chapter 14, <clears throat> we see that Abram has this, has this time with, this time with uh, Melchizedek. He offers the tithes. He has this communion with him. And now the king of Sodom, in verse 21, says to Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. So the king of Sodom is saying, Hey, listen, just give me the people back, and we'll set up the city and kind of carry on. But you keep the spoils. Hey, listen, you, you've, done, you've done so greatly. You've rescued us. You know, tell you what, you just keep the spoils. We'll, we'll figure out. We'll manage. But Abram, listen, look at Abram's response. It says, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord. The God Most High. So now Abram's calling him God Most High. The possessor of heaven and earth. That I will take nothing from a thread to, of a, uh, to a sandal strap. That I 
will not take anything that is yours, lest you say, I have made Abram rich. See, Abram was recognizing. See, remember he just gave tithes. Well, what is tithe? It's a, it's a recognition of God's ownership of everything, right? Abram was recognizing everything he had was from God. It says he raised his hand to the, to the Lord. In other words, his hand was looking to God for provision, not to man. He said, listen, my hand is out to God, not to you. I'm not looking for a handout. I'm not looking for you to make me rich, for you to support me. Everything I have is God's, and everything I want is from God. I don't want your stuff. I want it to be said of me that, that God has done this. I want God to get the glory, not you, king of Sodom. He wanted God to get the glory. What an awesome picture of the character of Abram. So he made a covenant. He's not going to take anything. He made a promise. I'm not going to take anything lest this king gets some of the glory instead of God. Except only, verse 24, what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Anair, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them take their portion. So he said, in other words, let them you know, take what they've eaten, what they needed to survive. Let the, those who came with me take their portion that belongs to them. But I'm, I'm good. I don't want anything. All I want is for God to get his credit, his glory that he is due. God is giving me this. God is setting this up. God has made great promises to me. And Abram's walking in it. He's confident in it. What an awesome example to us of how we are to live our Christian life today and now. We have promises to hold on to, don't we? Not only the promises of the things that have been accomplished, but the things that will be accomplished. We have good things to look forward to. And we can walk in those things now. And we should seek all things to be just as Abram did here, recognizing that all that we have is from God. We should look to him alone as our source of provision, as our source of everything. And we seek to give him the glory, not look to man, but to God as our source and our provider. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that you are our priest, Lord, that you are our mediator, Jesus. Lord, that we need no one, no person uh, to mediate on our behalf. That we can walk straight into your throne room. We can bow at your feet. Lord, we thank you that you deal with us as individuals. <coughs> that, you, that you know us intimately. Lord, you know the needs of each of us. You know our names. You're concerned. And you have a plan and a purpose. And I pray that we would walk in it, Lord, that we would follow the instructions you've already given. Lord, that we'd be obedient and faithful and that you would receive glory from our lives. Lord, help us to trust you as Abram did, to learn from his example. And Lord, I pray that you would make us great for your glory's sake, that your kingdom would, would abound through us and in us here on this earth for as long as we have left, for as long as you see fit to exercise your long-suffering. And uh, Father, we ask your blessing on the rest of this night. I thank you for this body of believers here. I'm so blessed by this family. I pray your blessing on them as they go out from here. Lord, may they walk in your joy and in your peace. And I pray that you'd use them in great ways in all that they do. In Jesus' name.